Hey, it's Martine. We want to thank you, our Post Reports listeners, by offering a special discount on a digital subscription to The Washington Post. Get unlimited access to our website and apps for less than a dollar a week. Sign up at postreports.com slash offer. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. It's Robert Samuels from The Washington Post. Post, this is Sarah Kaplan. Hi, this is Elahe Azadi with The Washington Post. Hey, how are you? This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, June 17th. Today, increasing global tensions with Iran, a once-in-a-generation expedition to the Arctic, and a significant political death in Egypt. What happened last week to set off the standoff between the U.S. and Iran? Well, tensions between Iran and the United States had been uh, quite high for, for some time. Rick Nowak is a foreign affairs correspondent for The Post, based in Berlin. Last week, there were two suspected attacks against tankers in the Gulf uh, of Oman. It is the assessment of the United States government that the Islamic Republic of Iran is responsible for the attacks that occurred in the Gulf of Oman today. And that is a very strategically important stretch of water near the Strait of Hormuz. Iran is lashing out because the regime wants our successful maximum pressure campaign lifted. One of the tankers was Japanese, which is interesting because, of course, why do Americans care about uh, a Japanese-owned vessel, for instance? But but what it really comes down to is global trade flows and uh, the Strait of Hormuz, which is in that region. Iran has threatened to block that quite a few times. The United States would also be impacted if that ever happened, if Iran was indeed attacking ships in that region because it would hurt global trade flows, it would potentially uh, raise oil prices globally, and that would certainly also impact the United States and its allies around the world. So after this attack happened, how did the U.S. respond? Last week, it uh, quite quickly blamed Iran for those suspected attacks. It's unmistakable what happened here. These were attacks by the Islamic Republic of Iran. There have been some contradictory messages coming out of the administration as well. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, for instance, said over the weekend, This is an international challenge. This is important to the entire globe. That he does not believe the U.S. wants war with Iran, but also the U.S. has continued to emphasize that military action is is an option. The United States is going to make sure that we do take all the actions necessary, diplomatic and otherwise, that achieve that outcome. You say a full range of options. Does that include a military response? Of course. One of the interesting questions here was whether the United States allies around the world would in fact follow suit. And on Friday, you had the uh, foreign secretary of Britain declaring that uh, Britain indeed now suspects Iran to have very likely been behind this attack. But you've also had other allies that are a lot more skeptical, Germany being one of them, that still hasn't really decided whether it buys into the U.S. version of events. And what is the evidence that the U.S. is pointing to that Iran would be responsible for this? 
Well, the U.S. has mainly pointed to a video showing crews approaching one of the vessels afterwards after that suspected attack. And the U.S. has said that this is evidence that they're trying to hide evidence or destroy evidence that would point into their direction. But they've also said that there is other evidence um, that hasn't been released. When other allies or other more independent experts have been a lot more cautious and have said it's not at all clear that Iran has in fact been behind this. For those who believe that Iran is responsible for this, what is the reasoning behind why Iran would do something like this? Well, that is the question that sort of looms over the entire debate, because Europe has been saying that there isn't really an explanation why Iran would uh, launch such attacks, because Iran has no inherent interest in launching a war. It has benefited from uh, sanctions being lifted over the last few years. Um, There have been more European businesses investing in Iran. And Europe has been quite clear that it wants to uphold that 2015 agreement, the Iran nuclear deal, and is determined to to facilitate trade. But the U.S. kind of rationale has been that Iran is trying to steer tensions in the region. It is trying to pursue and obtain a nuclear bomb. It's also trying to destabilize the region more generally. And their reasoning has been that Iran is you know, perhaps not even acting rationally, that there are fights within Iran between different factions. Interesting. But that there's a sense that for Iran, disrupting the global trade flow could be beneficial for them. Iran is cut off from a lot of those trade flows over the last few months. When you look at um, their oil exports, they have plummeted after the U.S. introduced those sanctions. They've been hit quite severely by by those sanctions. And, and the question, of course, is how much else do they have to lose? Or is this a way to put more pressure on Europe to kind of compensate them for them, to argue in their favor and to, to reestablish some of those trade ties? So why are foreign officials much more skeptical about Iran's role in these attacks than the U.S.'s? Well, I think some of it has to do with um, the Trump administration's prior claims over the last two years on, on a number of issues. I think when you, when you ask officials in European capitals, you often get a certain sense of skepticism about a lot of things the, the U.S. administration these days is saying. But in terms of Iran especially, there, there is this huge divide between Europe believing that it's done the right thing and sticking to this agreement and, and the U.S. simply pulling out of that deal. And 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 I think there's always going to be a, a lot of skepticism as long as President Trump is in power about his intentions and and his motives in trying to draw Europe essentially out of that agreement. And then as all of this is heating up, we've also seen that Iran has made a big announcement about its nuclear intentions. Yes, that's that's what happened today. And that, that's a really interesting development that I think a lot of European observers had feared for some time. Iran has essentially threatened to stop complying with certain parts of the Iran nuclear deal in the next 10 days, which is really soon. We are suspending. We are not revoking the commitments. We are not removing the commitments. The suspension means that we are in one hand working on the old reactor and in another one in in the new reactor. The announcement by the Iranian nuclear agency consisted essentially of two elements. First, they said they will exceed limits on stockpiled uranium by June 27, 
but also they might ignore prior restrictions on enrichment levels. And that is something experts fear is going to put them closer to uh, obtaining a nuclear bomb if they ever intend to do so, because you need that enriched, highly enriched uranium that is currently restricted to build such a bomb. So Iran is, is basically saying that they're planning to increase their uranium stockpile because of their their energy ambitions, but that there are concerns from people around the world that, that this could actually be part of their, their attempts to build a nuclear bomb. Yes, correct. Iran has always said that they're doing all of this for, for peaceful uh, purposes. And they have never acknowledged that they are, what, what the U.S. is claiming, pursuing um, a nuclear bomb. But the, the developments over the last hours or so are pointing into a direction that would make it easier for Iran to obtain such a bomb if they ever if they ever intended to do so. And that was exactly the scenario Europe and the United States at the time uh, in 2015 were trying to prevent. So where does that leave the U.S. and also Europe, who's trying to salvage whatever is left of the Iran nuclear deal? Well, it puts both sides in a, in a very difficult position. Europe has risked an open spat with the United States and the U.S. is fearing that a lot of its leeway is going to disappear. And that really explains why the United States and Europe are so openly clashing about this. Europe is very much trying to preserve that deal. They've made that very clear. They've also asked Iran to stick to that deal. But ultimately, it's unclear how they're going to prevail given that tensions are running so high and uh, that there is a deadline. The clock's ticking. Rick Nowak is a foreign affairs correspondent for The Post. I'm Sarah Kaplan. I'm a science reporter at The Washington Post. So this September... A German icebreaker called the Polar Stern is going to sail into the Siberian Arctic, and the crew is going to cut the engine and let the water freeze around them. And then they're going to spend the next year sitting frozen in the Arctic ice, letting it carry them wherever it does, hopefully over the North Pole. This is the only way to get to the most remote reaches of the Arctic, to get to the North Pole in winter when it's totally locked in ice and the weather is often so bad that you can't fly out there and you can't sail a ship. You have to let the ice take you. So that's what they're trying to do. And why are they trying to get to the North Pole in the middle of winter? For as long as there have been humans, we've had ice covering the North Pole year-round and that plays a really important role in stabilizing weather systems across the whole planet, especially in places where lots of us live, like, you know, sort of mid-latitudes, northern hemisphere. That ice is vanishing and shrinking at an accelerating rate, and scientists need to know what is happening, how fast it's vanishing, and what the consequences of that will be. And to do that, they want to spend an entire year getting sort of a baseline understanding of what is going on in this super remote, hard-to-access place, because only then will they be able to say, here's what's changing and here's what we need to be worried about. How are you doing, Sarah? Yeah, how are you? 
good. A little bit chilly there this yeah. morning, which surprised me. So this is such a massive undertaking that the National Science Foundation actually organized a training for several of the scientists who are going to be participating in Utkiavik, Alaska, which is the northernmost place in the U.S. And I talked my way into flying out there for a week and spending some time with the researchers on the sea ice. Was it cold? It was very cold. It was below zero basically the entire time. So I'm standing and looking at this massive pile of multi-year ice, which is ice that has survived the summer and made it to another winter. And it's just towering over me, um, maybe 20 feet, maybe 30. So what are, what are they going to be doing on a daily basis? They're taking measurements? Yeah. So there's 300 scientists who are participating, who are going to be living on board the Polar Stern. It's kind of a rotating cast. People will come on and off the ship every couple of months. And they come from 17 countries, more than 60 institutions, and they're doing literally everything you could think of measuring, they're trying to measure. So they're looking at the sea ice and how reflective is it? How much does it help sort of send sunlight back into the atmosphere and protect the earth from that additional warming? They're looking at the microbes that live in the ocean and even in the ice itself. They're looking at the formation of clouds and whether that's increasing or decreasing as the Arctic warms and does that reduce warming or does it accelerate warming? They're looking at the ocean circulation patterns. They're looking at what the seabirds are doing. Literally, I mean, the thing is that this is just a rare opportunity to get up there. There's never been a transpolar drift of this scale, the scientific ambition. And the forecast is that in the next few decades, there will be no summertime sea ice. And that would make a trip like this, this mission mosaic, extremely different. So this is sort of like, if you want to understand this place, now is your chance and lots of people are going. So the fact that you have all these scientists that are packed onto this ship for a year doing research at the North Pole, logistically, like, what does that take? So much. This mission has been in the works for, like, 20 years from kind of the initial conception of it to where we are now. The science plan is, like, 100 pages, and then the implementation plan is another 100 pages, and they have all of these rules for like how it's going to work. So like what kinds of rules? So like, for example, if you are an ecologist and you're studying little microbes and someone else is a snow scientist and they're trying to understand the snow, the ecologist is going to get mad at the snow scientist for digging up some snow that might affect their microbes. And the snow scientist doesn't want the ecologist tromping all over the snow and like (laughs) messing things up. And so one of the things they've had to map out is like all of the real estate on the land around the ship and who gets each little piece. And there were big fights over that. Like that took like year-long negotiations. (laughs) But what about just basic stuff like food and and, and the survival stuff for, for having people isolated on the ship in the middle of the Arctic. Yeah, I mean, that's also like a huge concern. So um, when you're in a place so remote as this, the only way to get there is by ship. So that's all of the resupplies are going to just come once every two months. And so the only way on or off, the only link to the outside world is going to be these resupply ships that have been scheduled out and they're being provided by a bunch of different countries. China's providing one, Russia's providing two, I think. And that's how people get on and off the ship. So like you're basically stuck up there. There's no internet. There's no phone service. You're extremely isolated from the rest of the world. 
You can send emails, but the data constraint on the emails is 50 kilobytes, which I looked up is two seconds of a song on iTunes. Oh, no. So, so like, you can— Pretty much very limited. Yeah, you can write words, but there's no sending pictures. There's no sending video. um, There's no, like, Skyping your family. And then, yeah, and then there are the safety concerns, right? I mean, this is a really harsh environment during the winter— People will be up there with no sunlight for the entire two months that they're there. The temperature will be, you know, minus 45 degrees Fahrenheit. There are polar bears, which are the largest land predator, and they're, like, pretty aggressive. And like, So is that, like, an actual That's an actual concern. concern, yeah. So one of the rules is, like, no one is allowed out on the ice without a bear guard who's armed and knows how, like, to measure bear behavior. And that's kind of why Whoa. they had this training— in April in Alaska is that some of these scientists, this is going to be their first time out on the sea ice. And, you know, they need to know how to, like, ride a snowmobile and not fall over. Harder than it sounds. They need to know how to, like, do all of these scientific measurements, but they also need to know how to dress. Like, one of the concerns is if you sweat too much, then your clothing will become wet and then it won't be able to... Yeah, it won't be able to keep you warm. And that's very dangerous when you're in negative 45 degree weather. You can get frostbite in a couple of minutes that way. Any reason that you need to stop at all if you're cold... Please stop, adjust your goggles. Don't think that you have to keep going uh, and hurt your face or something or hurt your hands or anything like so that. So you went to this training where all these scientists are learning how to survive in the Arctic for extended periods of time. What was that like and, and what did people say? The scientists were, you know, it's a whole mix, right? There were veteran Arctic explorers who have done this, you know, every year for 40 years, and they witnessed the Arctic change so much in their lifetimes. And then I talked to PhD students who, this is their first time doing fieldwork. This is their first time out on the ice, and they're just learning, like, how do you get your hands to not be so cold that you literally can't hold the pen to write down (laughs) the measurement you just took? Even if you are a veteran scientist, this is not the Arctic that a lot of people have, you know, were used to studying if they, you know, they say they started out in the 70s. Things are different now. The dynamics of the ice are different now. And so there's just a lot to prepare for physically and mentally. What did they say about why they're doing this? Why they're putting themselves through something that's so arduous? There's, you know, the adventure of it. These are people who want to have an adventure and want to walk in the footsteps of the Arctic explorers of, you know, a century ago. But, you know, they're also, they're scientists, right? They're not just motivated by adventure. They're motivated by data. And they have these big questions that they're trying to understand. Arctic is such a complex system that we don't understand as well as we understand so much of the rest of the world because, They're just, it's harder to study, right? You can't put a permanent research station in the Arctic because all there is is ice and the ice is moving all the time and breaking up and melting. Like we have permanent presence at the South Pole, but we don't have one at the North Pole. Um, We have a permanent presence in space. It is literally easier to get to the International Space Station. Time-wise, it takes six hours as opposed to a month, which is how long it takes to get to where they're trying to go. Um, And... Yeah, so there's questions about, like, what are all of these complex systems doing? How are they interacting? What is the snow doing that affects the fate of the ice, that affects the fate of the ocean, that affects the fate of the creatures that live in it? And if you're a scientist and, like, these are the questions that keep you up at night, then this is a really exciting opportunity. But at the same time, 
even though these scientists are doing important work by measuring how the Arctic is changing and how the ice is changing and, and the ice patterns, ultimately, like, they can't do anything to stop that. Climate change is going to happen regardless that this ice is going to keep disappearing. And so it must be kind of sad to go there knowing that that everything that they're seeing will soon change and will soon start to vanish. So what happens in the Arctic doesn't stay in the Arctic. One of the researchers on the training was this Oregon State graduate student, Daniel Watkins, and he put it this way. I think just the fact that like it's so far away from most major centers of population makes it so that like sea ice just seems like this exotic thing that exists somewhere but doesn't affect the rest of the world. But if you think about the area of the ocean that's covered in ice, it's fairly significant. And it connects to processes that impact the whole planet. There's this growing body of research that is connecting the kind of the warming of the Arctic, the lack of this very persistent and reliable cold at the top of the planet, to all kinds of really extreme and disastrous events all over the world. Scientists think that without this kind of stable cold over the pole, we're having a destabilized jet stream. That's the atmospheric river that pushes weather around the northern hemisphere. And with the destabilized jet stream, we're having hurricanes that tend to stall out over land, causing really catastrophic flooding. We're having worse droughts and heat waves in unexpected places, like the drought in California that had gone on for years. Um, We're having these polar vortexes, like what happened in the Midwest this winter, that causes really, really dangerous cold. And as long as human civilization has existed, right, we've had permanent year-round ice at the North Pole. And It's looking like in the next couple of decades, that's no longer going to be the case. And unless we can figure out how fast that's happening and what exactly it looks like and how that's interacting with all of these other features at the pole, we're not going to be able to predict what the consequences will be for all of us, you know, in the places where we live at mid-latitudes. And so, yeah, the, the scientists, they can't, they're not going to stop the ice from melting that's not the question they're trying to answer. What they're trying to answer is, like, what's what, what, what are we headed towards? Sarah Kaplan is a science reporter for The Post. After the Arab Spring in 2011, Egypt chose its first democratically elected president, Mohamed Morsi. Morsi collapsed and died today in court, according to Egyptian state television. He was facing a range of charges, including espionage and inciting violence. Charges which have been criticized for being politically motivated by those who oppose the current military rule in Egypt. You know, by the end of his presidency, although the Brotherhood would beg to differ, he was not uh, an especially popular political figure in Egypt. Karim Fahim is the Istanbul bureau chief for The Post. He was in Cairo in 2012 when Morsi was elected, and a year later when he was removed from office. 
Mohamed Morsi, who was a senior brotherhood leader. He served what was a, a fairly troubled year in power. It was troubled by his own missteps. So about a year after he was elected, he and his government were ousted in a military coup that was led by, at the time, General Abdel Fattah al-Sisi, who is currently the president of Egypt. Shaba Mr. Al-Azim, إِنَّ الْقُوَاتِ الْمُسَلَّحَةِ لَمْ يَكُنْ فِي مَقْدُورِهَا أَنْ تَصُمَّ آذَانَهَا أَوْ تَغُدِّ بَصَرَهَا The coup that deposed Morsi and his government was in many ways seen as the death knell of what was referred to as the Arab Spring uprisings. I mean, to be sure, there were domestic reasons in Egypt why his government was unpopular. He did things that were considered unpopular and there were massive popular demonstrations against his rule. So he was treated like an incredibly sort of dangerous enemy of the state. And his treatment, in fact, appeared to have been much worse than other political prisoners, according to his family and to groups like Human Rights Watch, who who tracked his treatment. The last time they tracked his condition, he was completely cut off from the outside world. He had no idea of current news events. He didn't have access to newspapers or pen or paper. And they said that at the end, at least, uh, it appeared that he did not even have a bed. So it's this sort of extraordinarily harsh treatment that is unusual even by the low standards of Egyptian prisons and speaks, I think, in many ways to the harsh repression and the paranoia of the current Egyptian government. Karim Fahim is the Istanbul bureau chief for The Post. That's it for today's episode. If you like listening to Post Reports and want to know how to support the work that we do here, please consider subscribing to The Post. We're offering listeners a special discount on a digital subscription. Get unlimited access to our website and apps for less than a dollar a week. Sign up at postreports.com slash offer. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. 